Welcome back to In Sickness and in Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. And before we get into the policies and the science behind them, we're going to spend a few episodes looking at the history and culture of guns in our country. One of the things that makes gun culture so fascinating that it really blurs the lines of questions about public health, politics, and culture. Gun violence in the United States really can't be solved without addressing these questions of politics, culture, addressing some of the the sort of fundamental conflicts of our history uh, to make things change. So in this episode, we're going to start exploring the origins of our nation's relationship to guns. hard to talk about gun culture in America without jumping back in time a couple hundred years, specifically to the drafting of the Second Amendment of the Bill of Rights. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights were heavily influenced by English laws like the Magna Carta and the English Bill of Rights of 1689. But at some point in time, American and English attitudes, culture, and laws about guns diverged. Today, the U.K. has far stricter gun laws than the U.S., and in fact, they're some of the strictest in the world. So what about our nation's history set us on a different path? And where did our Second Amendment come from, if not English law? To answer that question, we actually need to step back even further in time to pre-pre-colonial days before that parting of ways. And that brings us to someone who doesn't come up all that often in gun debates. He's better known for his six lives and uh, his dealing with the Pope for this. Henry VIII. That's right. The King of England from 1509 to 1547. But he was also very much interested in guns and took instruction in them and was determined to initiate a war with France. And that is what propelled the development of the gun industry. That's Lois Schwarer. She's an expert on the early history of guns in England. As Lois explains, Henry VIII helped start his nation's gun industry. It began for military purposes, but it quickly expanded. People who were making military guns perceived that there was a market for domestic guns, guns that could be used in hunting, guns for personal protection against uh, human and animal predators, guns used for prestige because uh, they could be made very beautiful, works of art, in fact. Under Henry VIII, private gun ownership started to spread but not without restriction. A century after Henry VIII's death, Parliament created the English Bill of Rights. Article 7 codified these restrictions. That the subjects which are Protestants may have arms for their defense, suitable to their condition, and as allowed by law. That's Carl Bogus, professor of law at Roger Williams University in Rhode Island. He's written extensively about the history of our Second Amendment. Article 7 lays out two primary restrictions. The first, religion. This was after the Protestant Reformation, and Parliament didn't want Catholics armed. 
Catholics were a suspect group. There was a feeling that um, Catholic forces uh, wanted to take control back of England. And there was a great deal of um, mistrust of Catholics. There were worries about Catholic plots. It is made very clear that the subjects were Protestant. That is to say, not Catholic, but Protestant only. They have arms for their defense. The second restriction was based on class. That's what Article 7 means by, quote, suitable to their condition. One needs to remember that this is a hierarchical society. The monarchy and the upper classes, members of the upper classes, do not want people who are not well-to-do possess and use a gun. And this is made clear by imposing a criterion of having an income of 100 pounds. 100 pounds is a lot of money in the 16th century, and so it legally restricts the possession and use of a firearm to about 2% of the society. Why didn't the wealthy want people of a, quote, certain condition to have guns? Well, one reason is a kind of snobbery, elitism. Hunting was the favorite occupation of the upper classes, and... uh, they were determined not to have any challenge to their dominance of it. Here's Carl Bogus again. One wag famously said that uh, English gun laws were all about protecting pheasants from peasants. The idea being that um, the upper class uh, can go hunting, but not peasants. Don't be shooting pheasants on uh, land uh, held by uh, dukes and earls. Guns weren't just for hunting, though. For Protestants of means, guns were used to protect livestock and, if needed, for self-defense. Guns were also made available for another crucial reason, so militias could be armed. A well-regulated militia, if you will. This is starting to sound a lot like our Second Amendment, right? Not quite. To understand the difference, let's take a closer look at that word, militia. English militias in the 1500s and 1600s weren't how we imagine militias to be today. It was a wide-ranging term, referring to armies that fought foreign wars and to the equivalent of state police, or perhaps the National Guard. The militia takes care of uh, domestic uprising, insurrection, and that kind of thing locally. Which brings us back to that fear of the lower classes in England. There's a great deal of fear about the poor because there is the sense that unless they are controlled, they will erupt and riot or other forms of disobedience protesting the situation in which they find themselves. Armed militias in England at the time didn't protect people from government tyranny. They protected the monarchy from the people. Well, they're very much under the control of the monarchy, and there's no thought of protecting people from the monarchy, not in the early modern era, certainly. In England, guns were highly regulated, with restrictions along religious and class lines. They were seen more as tools of the state and status symbols for the wealthy than something to which every pleb had a right. Article 7 of the Bill of Rights is very carefully drawn to reflect the historical attitude towards guns that has threaded through English history 
in my view, our Second Amendment is not based upon the Article 7 of the 1689 Bill of Rights. The ways in which Article 7 restricts guns was in many ways antithetical to our own Constitution. Why would Americans want to accept a Article 7 that has to do with a restriction on religion? I mean, we make it clear that in our Bill of Rights, there's no restriction on religion. Religion is free. Even before the Constitution was written, the American colonies were creating a new culture around guns and gun ownership. The British Empire was unable to sort of do the work of empire in North America solely through the use of of a regular army and really relied on settlers themselves uh, to do some of the violence that uh, enabled its expansion. That's Alex Trimble Young, a historian at Arizona State University. That was him at the very top of the show. He's written about our nation's early history with guns and how that affects our gun debates today. Alex is talking about the seizure of lands from indigenous peoples, which was at the core of colonization in North America. By having armed individuals who had a personal stake in expansion, the English didn't need to send a massive army to colonize America. Gun ownership was uh, not uh, primarily about hunting, not primarily uh, about protection from a tyrannical state, but was tied up with the colonial project of the British Empire in North America. You had militias organized primarily for what they called defense, but what was really offense against indigenous peoples uh, in the 13 colonies. And again, it's essential to understand the meaning of that word, militia. In the early colonies, it was different than it had been in England. Before the American Revolution and the Continental Army, there existed two main types of militias in the U.S. One, like Alex describes, was deployed to help an armed conflict on the new continent. And it went beyond what even the English had imagined. Some of the colonists' demands uh, had to do with their desire to take over land on the frontier uh, and antagonize uh, indigenous tribes on their own territory in ways that the British Empire didn't want to do for geopolitical reasons. Americans absolutely needed a weapon. And by the time America is settled, there's no question about the need for a weapon. And this you know, is true for a long time. And the other type of militia? The militia and slave patrols were synonymous, and it was the militia that had the responsibility for ensuring that there would not be slave revolts and that slaves would not be preparing for revolts. For many of the colonies, this was the essential task of a militia. It's hard to underscore just how central concerns about slave rebellion were to white Southerners in those days. In many places in the South, the majority population was an enslaved black population being controlled by a minority white population. So there was constant worry, more than worry, obsessive fear about uh, slave revolts. And that's what the militia was almost exclusively about in the South. And these fears weren't unfounded. Here's just one example. In 1739, outside of Charleston, South Carolina, 22 slaves gathered at a store, killed the shopkeeper, and seized its weapons. And began to march under uh, flags proclaiming uh, 
freedom and liberty and asked slaves to join them. And somewhere between 60 and 100 slaves did join the insurrection. This happened to be on a Sunday. And militia members, we're talking about simply uh, adult white males, um, since it was Sunday, uh, happened to be in church when word spread that there was a slave insurrection in progress. At the time, South Carolina law required militia members to take guns with them to church for precisely this type of eventuality. So they gathered together and they met the revolting slaves. Uh, there was a, a battle. Um, about 65 people died in that battle. This was the Stono Rebellion, one of the biggest slave uprisings in U.S. history. But it was far from the only one. Events like it solidified the connection between slavery, militias, and private gun ownership in the southern U.S. The militia were the principal slave control instruments at the time of the writing of the Bill of Rights and before. So how did we get from colonial expansion and slave patrols to gun ownership being about defending against tyranny? The American Revolution, right? Our militias were enlisted to help fight the English at Bunker Hill and Lexington and Concord, and they became the defenders of freedom. And after throwing off the chains of English tyranny, Congress passed the Second Amendment to protect our newly born democracy from overreaching government, right? Again, not quite. First off, militias weren't exactly the heroes of the American Revolution. The militia had been a flop during the Revolutionary War. They all knew that in Philadelphia. The militia's victories, Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, uh, if Bunker Hill is considered a victory, were the um, pretty much the sum total of uh, successful operations by the militia against the professional British Army. At George Washington's urging, a standing army and navy were established. And the need for a well-regulated militia, on the other hand, remained largely unchanged from early colonial days for geographic expansion and protection of the institution of slavery. All of the South invested a huge amount of energy and resources uh, into conducting slavery patrols just about every night, perhaps every night. And it was just a source of life in the South at the time the Bill of Rights was written in, um, in 1789. According to Carl, Lois, Alex, and many other scholars, the Second Amendment was born of a desire to protect these types of militias. Unfortunately, though, the amendment itself isn't so clearly worded. If it were, at least some of our current disagreements about gun rights might be settled. So what did James Madison mean when he wrote those 27 words exactly? That's the question. And while we can't travel back in time, we do know a lot about the context in which it was drafted. Like so many parts of our Constitution, the Second Amendment borrowed from English traditions while also creating something entirely new. When Madison wrote the Second Amendment, Madison was well aware of the, uh, the English Bill of Rights. But as Lois puts it, The Bill of Rights of 1689 along with other of the laws of uh, England, such as the Petition of Right and Magna Carta and so forth, are very much in the forefront of the minds of our American forefathers. But they certainly pick and choose among the points in those documents. Our Constitution and Bill of Rights also emerged from a series of compromises unique to the original 13 colonies. 
One of the key authors of the Bill of Rights was James Madison, who represented Virginia in the Constitutional Convention. He, more than anyone, was responsible for the wording of the Second Amendment. And to understand the amendment fully, you need to understand the concerns that Southern states like Virginia had about the newly drafted Constitution, specifically concerns about militias. There was a debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists in Richmond, Virginia, in June of 1788, when Virginia was determining whether or not to ratify the newly proposed Constitution of the United States. The Constitution split authority over militias between state governments and the federal government. Specifically, it gave Congress the ability to arm the militia. And the anti-federalists argued that that meant that Congress also had the ability to disarm the militia, that only Congress could arm the militia. And if Congress did not arm the militia, the states would have unarmed militia and therefore would be vulnerable to um, slave insurrections. Madison thought the Second Amendment might be a solution, a compromise to address the concerns of southern states. He couldn't say that the states could arm the militia because that would contradict the main body of the Constitution, which said that Congress had the power to arm the militia. So instead, Madison drafted the Second Amendment to allow militias to be armed by the members of those militias themselves in the event that Congress didn't arm them. The Second Amendment effectively guaranteed the rights of the states to have an armed militia to provide for their own security, regardless of what Congress might decide. It gave the states a some minimum right to an armed militia. We'll never know exactly what the framers were thinking when they wrote the Second Amendment. It seems pretty clear, though, that to the Founding Fathers, a well-regulated militia wasn't meant to be a check on government oppression, and in fact was a tool of oppression for keeping the slave population under control and for fighting off natives as we moved west to colonize the frontier. And insurrectionism, the idea that the Second Amendment was designed to allow for a citizen-led armed revolt against the government, isn't what the framers had in mind. The founders recoiled at that notion when they were faced with armed groups complaining about governmental policies during the Shays Rebellion in Massachusetts, the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania. Um, they were horrified and stamped that out very quickly and made it entirely clear that if you do not agree with government policy, your route of protest is through the political system, through the vote, through arguments in the legislature, through arguments in the press, and not through violence or the threat of violence or through the barrel of a gun. Most gun rights activists will take exception with that. Many believe that owning guns is essential, perhaps even more important than free speech, to safeguarding our democracy against tyrannical yeah, rule. I, mean, I think when we look at the Second Amendment, some people say, well, gee, it's there for hunting and so on. No, I mean, it's actually there to protect us against government tyranny. You know, the you right know, to bear arms is because that's the last form of defense against tyranny. And if you want to feel the warm breath of freedom on your neck, if you want to touch the pulse of liberty that beat in our founding fathers, you can do so through the majesty of the Second Amendment of the Bill of Rights. There lies what gives the most common of common men the most uncommon of freedoms. It's become almost like a right-wing cliché uh, nowadays, but is uh, one that has been used over the course of U.S. history by both the right and left, which is this 
idea that uh, the founders gave us three boxes to stand on, the soap box, the ballot box, and the bullet box. Three boxes that were supposedly part of our system of checks and balances. Free speech, the vote, and guns. The Second Amendment is so often held up as a positive symbol of American exceptionalism, as a institution and a right that we protect that makes our society fundamentally more democratic than European societies that regulate the control of firearms much more tightly. But at the end of the day, I think when you look at the long history of private ownership of firearms in the United States, you realize that they were and are much more often put to undemocratic purposes involved with uh, racial domination uh, rather than promoting a, a truly egalitarian democracy. How could the meaning of those 27 words have changed so much? In our next episode, we'll look at regional differences about when it's okay to use violence and how the history and way of life of the people who settled those areas molded those attitudes. Today's episode of In Sickness and In Health was produced by Dan Richards and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and In Health. 